without having tears in my eyes. Because that's what the blood of Jesus has done for us. Yes, we know those who are Christ's followers, those who belong to Christ, those who have been united to Christ, know that the blood of Jesus can make the vilest sinner clean. This morning, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate and to commemorate the Lord's Supper, we are invited, even through that song and through everything we've done so far in the service, to prepare our hearts for that celebration. In these moments, in these next few moments, I encourage you to open Scripture to John chapter 11 as we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of John, a gospel series we have entitled, Jesus, the Revealer of Life. It is this chapter, friends, it is this chapter that gives the greatest proof that Jesus is a life. That Jesus came to reveal a life to us. For those of you who are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, one of our little red Bibles, we hope if you don't have a Bible, you'll pick that up. Open Scripture to John chapter 11, and you may find this passage in our few Bibles on page number 932. 932. The word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning, is the following. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. It was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now, was now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles away from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their 
the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad order, for he had been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some, some of them, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. 
if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us. Let's ask the Lord to give us his wisdom, his spirit, so that we may understand it and apply it to our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, this entire gospel has been written to convince us that Christ is the Son of God. And that Son of God is Jesus. We pray, Lord, that understanding that for, for us may bring us life even today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Friends, John began this gospel by introducing Jesus as the Word. Remember how this gospel began in chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word. This Word was equal with God, yet distinct from God. And through Him all things were made. And then in the very beginning, John tells us, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The two chief characteristics of Christ were light and life. This is what Christ provides, light and life. In chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man to give us a concrete illustration what it means for him to give light. He gave sight even to the blind to show that his light heals even our blindness, our spiritual blindness. It opens our eyes to see the darkness we live in and transforms us and transfers us into the kingdom of His light so that we may see the light and walk in the light. Now the last miracle Jesus makes in this gospel, the last sign that John records for us, is that Jesus gives life to a dead person. And to show us a concrete illustration that He has authority over life and death, Actually, by putting this at the, as a last sign in this gospel, John also tells us that the ministry of Jesus is ultimately, ultimately a matter of life and death. Jesus has done many miracles, but by the fact that this is the last one in this gospel, tells us that the ministry of Jesus 
can be summarized in this. It's a matter of life and death. Jesus told us in chapter 5 that a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who will hear will live. Jesus said that in chapter 5 when the opposition against Jesus began. And now Jesus will show us that His words are not empty. His promises are not empty. His promises and His words cannot be broken. Rather, it is easier for, the, for death to be broken, for His words to break the power of death, than for His br- words to be broken. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. It is easier for Jesus to break the power of death than for His words and promises to be broken. Everything this gospel has been trying to say about Jesus finds its summary in these last two miracles that Jesus performed to give sight to the blind and life to the dead. And these were not just physical realities. They were real-life displays of what Christ does inside of us, in our spirits, in our souls. He brings sight and He brings life. This morning, let's see how the story of Jesus, the resurrection and the life, how this story unfolds. We'll see, first of all, in this chapter, a correct but incomplete conviction about Jesus. A correct but incomplete conviction about Jesus. The story of Lazarus opens up in a very surprising way. Jesus chose to delay responding to the request of the very people he loved. Mary and Martha called Jesus to come because the one he loved was sick. This was their request in verse 3. But what does Jesus do? He delays. In verse 5, look in verse 5, we're told again that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, he stayed two more days. The conviction of these two sisters was very clear and correct. If Jesus could get there, his brother would not die. That confidence was the first thing each of these sisters uttered to Jesus when they greeted him four days later. But this time with a deep regret. Look in verse 21. Martha greeted Jesus with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Then look in verse 32. Mary greeted Jesus with the exact same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Exactly the same words. I think these sisters talked among themselves. It's as if with every passing of hour, of every hour prior to his death, as these sisters were taking turns to care and minister for their dying brother, they were hoping that Jesus would just burst the door open and come in, come to the bed, and heal him. And then with every hour after his passing, these sisters were thinking the same thing, now with regret, if Jesus had been here. Even the crowds said the same thing in verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying. 
Friends, three times in the story, this is the conviction held by all who were present. If he could have just arrived in time, he could have stopped this man from dying. A correct conviction. A correct belief about Jesus. Their hope was true. Had Jesus been there, he could have healed Lazarus and thus keep him from dying. How many of us, dear friends, have the same hopes when we see someone being stricken by the diagnosis of a cancer? Or someone who is diagnosed by another fatal disease. And we pray that God would heal the disease so that our dear family friend, family member or friend could be rescued from dying, at least temporarily. But Jesus delayed. Jesus delayed. And he did so, friends, he did so deliberately. As a matter of fact, look with me to verse 6. He did it not only deliberately. He said, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days. And then when Jesus knows that Lazarus had fallen asleep, look at verse 14. Jesus said, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Now I want you to think about this. This is hard for us. To comprehend, Jesus was not only deliberately late, but also gladly late. And he did this towards people he loved. Jesus could have never responded to Mary four days later. Oh, I'm so sorry I was late. You know, sometimes we do that. I'm so sorry I was late. Jesus could have not said that in good conscience. Jesus didn't say that because he deliberately was light and gladly was light. To our human perspectives, this is cruel. Jesus could have been there but chose not to. And this is a difficulty of people that people often have with God when, when God chooses not to show up on time. We say, if God could save someone from dying, why didn't he? And the first motivation we tend to have is to question if God loves us, why doesn't He answer? Why didn't He stop a mother of six children less than the age of 40 to die of cancer a few months ago up in Cleveland? Why didn't He? If He could and He's a loving God, why didn't He? That's why perhaps John records twice for us that Jesus, he wants to make us sure that we understand Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. His delay was not in any way a sign that he doesn't love them or that he's not in control. So why did Jesus delay? Why did he do it gladly? Friends, the text tells us that Jesus delayed to give an opportunity for their growing Faith to expand and to grow. Look again more carefully at verse 15. For your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Now notice who were the first beneficiaries of this delay. 
It was the disciples and their faith. It was the disciples, the very ones who walked with Jesus. Then if we look at verse 40, we are told that Martha also needed this lesson. In verse 40, Jesus told Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There's something Martha had to learn. And then finally, there's somebody else who needs to get this lesson, the crowds that were watching. Jesus said in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have, been, that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Yes, friends, Jesus delayed, and gladly so. Not because he didn't care about our suffering or about our pain, but because our faith in him is more important, more important than anything in this life, more important than our careers, more important than success, more important even than health, and certainly more important even than being rescued from death. Friends, is this the way you think about your faith in Christ? Is your view of your faith in Christ more important than even being rescued from death? God thinks that the quality of our faith in Christ is more important than the quality of our life. Can I say that again? God thinks that the quality of our faith in Him it's more important than the quality of our life. And Jesus wants to give this lesson to these, to these people. And there are, really, there are two types of crowds here. The disciples and the followers of Christ, like Martha. And then the crowds who were not yet convinced of who Jesus was. Friends, this morning, each of you belong to one of these two crowds. One of these two categories. You are either a committed follower or someone who's still skeptical about Jesus, and you're still trying to wrap your mind around who this Jesus is. Now, the surprise for us is that both of these audiences needed to grow in their faith. Both of these audiences needed this miracle so they could trust in Christ. Let's address each of them and the way these audiences needed to grow in their faith. Faith expanded for the followers of Jesus. Faith expanded for the followers of Jesus. Now, why did these disciples need a sign? Think with me for a moment of everything we've been through in this gospel so far. These disciples have heard all of his teachings. They have seen all his miracles. Earlier in chapter 6, when everybody else deserted Jesus, um, these disciples stayed with him and confessed that he is the Holy One of God. Why did they need this lesson? It's not that they didn't believe that Jesus was a Christ, the Son of God. It's simply that they didn't understand all the implications of that title for them. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That Jesus is the Christ, or in Hebrew, the Messiah, which meant, by the way, which just meant the anointed king, the promised ruler of God over his people. What does that title mean? In what way is this promised king exercising his dominion and reign? Yes, Jesus showed his power over disease and sickness. And all accepted this truth. They could accept very clearly that Jesus was sovereign over disease and human sickness. But is that it? If Jesus was just a miraculous healer, how was he different than all the Old Testament prophets? 
Friends, it's this sign that shows us that his, the power of His reign and the scepter of His kingship extends not just in this physical life, but also in death. He is king over death so that He liberates people from the domain of death and He considers death asleep. Friends, it's as easy for Jesus to, op- to bring somebody up from dead, from being dead, as it is for us to wake someone from sleep. That's the kind of power He has. That's the kind of authority, that's the kind of reign and dominion this anointed king has. He is ruler over death because he is the resurrection and the life. This is the answer Jesus gave Martha in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, he's the anointed king, but he's telling us now how deep and wide his kingship extends over death. So that from now on, death has no power over him over, or over those who belong to his dominion. Look at the next claim Jesus makes in verse 25. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Both statements, friends, both statements refer to the same reality. The kind of life Jesus gives keeps on living even though we die physically. The kind of life Jesus gives us now is the kind of life that will keep on living even though we die. There's a kind of new living, a kind of new life caused by believing Christ that will just never end. Friends, this is one of the major claims that we believe as Christians, that that life is given through Christ. It's a life that begins here and we will go beyond the grave. That life is characterized by many new features, dear friends. Scripture is full of what describes that new life. It has a new love for God. It has a new love for God's people. It has a new hate for sin. But one of the characteristics of that new life is that it has a new longing for eternity. Because it's convinced that it will never end. It's a life that is no longer oriented by trying to escape physical death at all costs. There's a readiness to be with the Lord. Christians, true Christians, are controlled not by the success of this life, but by the fullness of the life beyond the grave. That's why Christians think of their earthly possessions with an open hand. And they willingly and joyfully give to the Lord because their life is no longer about just this life. Generosity is one of the signs of of having a life that will never end. That's why in the book of Hebrews, the author describes this new life affecting how how these new believers were living. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32. Remember those old, earlier days after you had received the light? That's, a sign of, that's another way of saying after you have been saved. Remember those earlier days after you have received the light. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully... 
accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. That's a new life. Yes, our confidence and hope in the new life that Christ has given us affects the way we live the rest of this life here on earth because we're convinced that this life does not end with a grave. Friends, does the way you live now reflect your conviction that your life has no end? If you're a child of God. If, you don't have, if you're not a child of God, these questions don't relate to you. Not yet. But if you are a child of God, does the way you live now reflect your conviction that your life has no end? Or are you living as if it all stops with death? Are you spending your life for things that you can't enjoy beyond the grave? If Jesus came to give us a life with no end, why is it that we're mostly consumed with things that end at the grave? Be honest with yourself. Look at your schedule, at your preoccupations, at your treasures, at your aspirations. They give a better picture of your heart than your church attendance does. Why is it that even when we come to church, it's hard for us to focus and to get our minds away from the things that will not pass beyond the grave? Why is it that we bring those things with us even here when we try to focus together on God? Martha is a great example of people who may have a great theology, but still live life disconnected, as if life ends at the grave. Look at Martha's confession, a great confession. Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise, verse 23. Martha says, I know he'll rise. I know there's a resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one speaking to you is enacting the hope you have for that day. I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha says, yes, I know this. I believe that you are Christ, the Son of the living God, who was to come into the world. This is a great confession Martha makes. Friends, this is the confession the Gospel of John is trying to convince all of us. Remember John chapter 20, verse 31, 30 and 31? Martha gets it. The, seal, the, the deal is sealed. And yet, when Jesus stands in front of the tomb and he says, open the tomb, it is Martha who has a hard time connecting the dots. The very one who made the greatest confession. Francis tells us that even though we may have the right confession, the right theology, it's still difficult for us to connect the dots between what we believe about God, about Jesus, and the way we actually react to life. That's why Jesus tells Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Yes, Martha believed that Jesus is the resur resurrection and the life. But what does that matter now when it's too late? Friends, here's what the story is about. It's about not what Jesus can do if he showed up on time. We all know those things. We all know what Jesus can do if he showed up on time. This story is not about what Jesus can do 
if you showed up on time. This story is about what Jesus can do when we think it's too late. When all hopes are gone. When grief has started and it's flowing. When there seems to be no more hope. If we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then there is no circumstance when he's too late. The crowd and Martha and Mary did not understand that the one who was able to keep Lazarus from dying has not come too late. He came on time because Jesus wanted to teach them that for those who believe in him, he never comes too late. There's no time when he's too late. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and this is what he claimed to be, then even in the moments when the world thinks he's absent or he's delaying or he came too late, even in those moments, our grief and pain are soothed by the hope of eternity. It is only when we taste of the loss of a dear family member or friend that we can experience in the most powerful way the comfort that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Why did Jesus delay and do so gladly? Jesus could have given this lesson at any time to his disciples, don't you think? He could have given this speech. And by the way, he gives his entire speech before it all happens. In most other miracles, Jesus gives the lesson after he created the miracle. This is the only miracle where he gives the teaching before he creates a miracle. Jesus could have given this lesson at any other time, don't you think? But he does it in the midst of pain. He does it in the midst of sorrow. Because it is only then that we most powerfully feel the comfort of his resurrection. I love what Spurgeon says. You never know either the bitterness of sin or the sweetness of pardon till you have felt both. You never feel, you never know either the bitterness of sin or the sweetness of pardon till you have felt both. You never know your own weakness till you have been compelled to go through the rivers and you have never have known God's strength had you not been supported amid the water floods. That's why Jesus delayed gladly. So that the message that he's the resurrection and the life could be more sweetly experienced by those who are there. The sweet and powerful fragrance of the resurrection, which he alone provides, can only be savored when we have tasted the bitter taste of death. There are some of you right now, dear friends, who still live with deep regrets or disappointment that Jesus didn't show up on time to heal your spouse or your child or your parent or a friend. Oh, dear friend, when we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, there is no concept that he's late. It's still painful, but a pain full of hope. That's what we call painful. Pain full of hope. Knowing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life when the world will think it's too late will make all the difference. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Child of God, this Jesus did for your sake and my sake. But there's someone else at the grave that needed to be convinced of his identity. It's not only the disciples and Martha and Mary, but the people who are watching many of whom were still skeptical. This is faith defined for the skeptics of Jesus. 
the last encounter Jesus had with many of the people of Jerusalem, if you remember, um, was at the Feast of Dedication. And at the end of that feast, they tried to take stones to kill Jesus. At the, in, that end, he, in the end of chapter 9, Jesus said, Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I the Father. Jesus says, if you don't believe what I say about myself, at least believe what I'm doing. And hearing this, the Jews tried to catch Jesus so they could stone him. Now, many of the Jews from Jerusalem came to Bethany. We don't know if some of them were the same in the same crowd. We just don't know. But we do know that some of them were skeptical. And we do know that some of them did come to Christ in the end. But others did not even after this sign. Oh, friends, Jesus did this last sign to show us that the life he came to give is real life. The most real life God can offer you. Christ has authority to speak to those who are dead and call them to life. He told that in chapter 6 that he's the bread of life which we must eat. He told us in chapter 7 that he's a living water which wells up into eternal life. He told us in chapter 8 that he's the light of the world, that light of life. And now in chapter 11, he tells us plainly that he is life itself and he gives it. But how will these Jews get it? The last thing Jesus has in his card, in his hand, the last card that he's going to put on the table to try to convince these Jews is Listen, I and I alone can make dead people come to life. Will you believe me even now? How amazing that while many believed, there were still some who didn't. Of these is true what Jesus said in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, that even if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Someone did rise from the dead. And, some, and they still haven't believed. What were disciples, what were the, the skeptics called to believe about in, in Jesus? Uh, about Jesus, the, the prayer Jesus gave them and us gives us a huge point. They were called to believe that Jesus was sent by God, one with God, even though distinct from him. Jesus thanked his Father for listening to him. But no miracles have yet been performed. Jesus talks to his father as the father has already listened to him. That's a point. Jesus was convinced how close he was with his father. This prayer also tells us that we should see in this sign that God himself was acting through Christ. It's not simply that Jesus did this sign as a macho man. Look at what I can do. He's showing to us both his power, but also his dependence on God. He could do nothing without God. That's why he's praying to God for this miracle. Jesus was trying to convince his people that God, the creator of the universe, revealed himself most clearly through Jesus. But this prayer, Jesus wants to direct our eyes, neither to the grave nor simply just to himself, but to the one who sent him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life because God the Father gave this life to us through Christ. That's why, friends, it's not enough simply to believe in God. This is a point for the skeptics. It's not enough simply to believe in some higher being out there that somehow is in control of this universe. It's not enough to believe that. If all you believe is that, and you think that somehow on the day of judgment you will get a pass, you won't. 
the one thing this God of the universe, this higher power out there is trying to convince skeptics is that Jesus is equal to that higher power. And the most clear revelation of the higher power is revealed to us in Christ. To reject Christ is to reject God. You cannot have just a belief in God but not in Jesus. That's what Jesus is trying to do. And through this prayer, he is simply saying, listen, I'm going to raise this man from the dead, but it's not I, it's God who does it. That's why I'm praying to him. And then how amazing, how amazing, dear friends, that this chapter begins with how skeptics, how people dead in their sins receive this new life. It's in the last, in the last um, descriptions in the Sanhedrin, the dialogue with the Sanhedrin, that Jesus actually unfolds for us, or we're told, John unfolds for us, the way Jesus gives life. God gives life through Jesus. Here's a crazy part in this chapter. This chapter is not only about Lazarus' life that needed to be spared. It's about the life of the nation that needed to be spared also. Surprisingly, this chapter about life and the resurrection is also the chapter about the death of Jesus. From chapter 5 till now, the Pharisees have been making attempts to kill Jesus. But it's now after the, after the resurrection of Lazarus that the events of the crucifixion start to unpack. There's a deep irony, friends, in the request to come to Bethany and save a man from dying. Do you remember, do you realize this is the last journey Jesus makes to Jerusalem. This will be the last journey Jesus will cross the Jordan back into Judea. And he did it at first to spare a life, Lazarus' life. It is through this journey that Jesus is going to give his life so that the life of God's children might be spared for all eternity. The trip and the actions that brought us life came at the cost of the death of our Savior. Actually, the life and the resurrection Jesus gives is an incredible picture of the fruitfulness of His death for us. Or in other words, the events of the death of Christ begin to unfold by starting with the end in mind, with the resurrection. It's this sign of the resurrection that gets Jewish leaders to seriously pursue the arrest of Jesus. And notice what motivated the Jewish leaders to move to execute Jesus, verse 28, 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Fear of losing their authority and their nation. This is what motivated the Jewish leaders. Friends, the words of Caiaphas reach the peak of irony in verse 50, when he says, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man dies for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Friends, these words were absolutely incredible. Of course, Caiaphas was motivated by his selfish, sinful ambitions. And yet he used these words here in common with the sacrificial system. To die for the people was a phrase used, a phrase used of animals sacrificed in the Jewish rituals. It's clear that Caiaphas thought that eliminating Jesus would secure ongoing security with the Romans. But John tells us that Caiaphas didn't say this from his own. There was someone else above who was guiding his words. Even though motivated by selfish and sinful ambitions, 
there was somebody else who was inspiring this man to speak words that gave us the intent of Jesus' death and the meaning of his death. What a picture of God's sovereign hand. John points out that it's the highest official in Israel, the highest representative of the nation, the high priest of that year, spoke of Jesus' death as the only way which people could be saved. I love what, um, what Ritterboss said. Israel had to hear this from the lips of its own priest. Friends, what Caiaphas said is the explanation of how Jesus spares your life and my life. That's why Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He came to die in our place. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your sins deserve God's punishment? If you do, have you trusted in Christ that He is the one who has procured, provided for us a new life? If you're this morning here and you have heard this news of the gospel, but you've never, you've never made a public proclamation, a public confession of your faith in Christ as the one who has died for you to give you new life, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But friend, do not leave this place letting this decision, let us this reality of your life hanging in some skeptical or confused or, or no assurance mode. Know that Jesus came to give you life. And for those of us who have made that commitment to him, I hope and pray. And we're encouraged to know how to live this life, a life that has no end, and live it, live it with that in mind. Let us pray.